This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The first fairy tale I remember was Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling. First, my parents read it at bedtime. When I was older later on and learned to read, my mother wrote the words of the story in large letters with thick marker so I could read it for myself. Eventually, the book fell apart, the pages were dog-eared, and fairy tales were put aside altogether. Yet the dream remained. The only child in my kindergarten class with a visible disability, I desperately wanted to belong and to be accepted. Maybe, like the ugly duckling, I too would grow up to be beautiful and would find a happy ending. Today, we discuss disability and fairy tales with author Amanda LaDuke. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juwita Gupta. I'm the host of the program. If you hear any ambient noise, please excuse us because we are working from home on account of the pandemic. If you have any questions about COVID-19 and you want to catch up on some of our latest segments that deal with the pandemic, you can find them all in one place, ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. My guest today is Amanda LaDuke, author of the new book, Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. Her book is available as a paperback on Amazon.ca and as an audiobook on Audible.ca. She joins us now on the line from Hamilton, Ontario. Amanda, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much for having me, Joita. It's a real pleasure. It's great to have you on the program. Now, you write that Quite appropriately, or rather appropriately, the idea for this book came to you when you were in the forest. Tell us about what happened there. Sure. So about two years ago, I went on a writing retreat uh, off the coast of Seattle at a place called Hedgebrook Farm. It's for uh, female and female-identifying writers. And I was there for three weeks, and I was working on a novel um, that uh, ended up having quite a few connections to disability and fairy tales, but wasn't really looking like that at the time. And I was having a rough day of it, so I went for a walk. The retreat is located on a farm on Whidbey Island, and they have about 40 acres, and it's a beautiful forest, just a lovely place to be. And I was walking through the forest, and I had a walking stick with me, and I have cerebral palsy, which affects my right side. Uh, it means that I walk with a limp uh, and have some balance issues. Um, they're, they're mild as far as these things go. But I was noticing as I walked that it was actually quite a bit more easy or quite a bit easier rather for me as I walked with the walking stick. And I was thinking that maybe, you know, it would be useful for me to look at getting a cane at some point in the future. And as I walked, I was thinking about how magical forests are. Um, but then how forests also keep disabled people out at the same time Mm -hmm. because of that inaccessible um, nature of them. You know, you can't really have a mobility device and walk through or move through a forest without encountering some kinds of difficulties. And then as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about fairy tales and how we associate fairy tales with the forest. 
but then how we don't often associate fairy tales with disability, even though there is a lot of disability representation in the fairy tales that we know and love. Mm-hmm. And suddenly realizing this connection, it seems so obvious to me and also so interesting that I wanted to write an essay about it. So after I left the retreat, I started doing some research and I was thinking about how to write this essay. And the essay kept getting longer because the more research that I did, the more I uncovered that there wasn't really anything out there that looked at the connection between fairy tales and disability from a sort of um, pop culture perspective. There's a lot uh, that's been written about the connection in academic circles. There's a scholar by the name of Anne Schmiesing in the United States who has done a lot of work on this in particular. And reading her work was really quite illuminating for me. So I started collecting more research and thinking about this essay that then became a series of essays that then, you know, became an idea for a book. And I took that idea for the book to Coach House. They had this nonfiction series called Exploded Views, which were these sort of short um, book-length essays on a variety of pop culture and cultural criticism topics. And I had sort of thought that the book might be a good fit for the series. And lucky for me, they agreed and uh, agreed to publish it. And then I spent sort of the, the first half of 2019 writing the book. And I had originally envisioned that it would be more of a cultural criticism sort of book. But the more I was writing, the more it became clear to me that I needed to weave my own personal experience of disability Mm -hmm. into it because I really wanted to look at how disability and the perceptions around disability have shaped my own life in the same way that fairy tales shape the lives of many of us in the Western world. Um, I think even those of us that, you know, aren't really exposed to fairy tales or maybe don't consider themselves fairy tale fans we still follow them to a a large degree you know the fairy tale narrative is very much ingrained in culture so sorry that was a a long answer to your question but that's sort of how the book came into being but you know what you anticipated my next question because when i was reading the book one of the things i was finding it hard to do was to slot it into a genre is it memoir is it uh, cultural criticism? Did did you end up writing a book that you would consider genre defining, defining or defying, or is it a book that really brings together various genres? Um, I think it's a, a bit of all of those things, but I think it's a genre defying book um, in in that sense. Like it isn't strictly memoir. It isn't strictly cultural criticism. Um, but I think you know, for me. It was really interesting in writing it because my life reflects that kind of approach, right? Like my life is at once, I'm, if this makes sense, you know, I'm I'm thinking about cultural criticism at the same time as I'm thinking about how my life is impacted by that cultural criticism. And I have done work before um, and have written personal essays. So for for me, in, in some ways, I feel like the book is kind of my personal essay style writ large. Uh, because I have done that before in, you know, smaller pieces, talking about yourself and your own life, but then, you know, drawing parallels between that and something else in the wider world. So I guess if I could, you know, if, if there was sort of a, a genre that I think it, it fits in sort of specifically, even though it, it doesn't, it still is genre defying, I would say probably actually the, the personal essay genre for me, um, at least my my approach to the personal essay is kind of what really shaped the book as it was growing. 
So Amanda, in the book, you talk about how you really hope it is a conversation starter. Can you tell us how that is? Yes, absolutely. So initially, when I was planning on writing the book, uh, I when I signed the contract with Coach House, the book hadn't been written yet, and I had signed it based on a kind of outline for what I was envisioning that the book would be. And originally, my plan had been to devote several chapters to fairy tales from different cultures around the world, because, you know, um, we are so, especially in Western culture, I think we've been so Disney-fied in the sense that the fairy tales that most people know and love are ones that are fed to us through Disney and those kinds of counterparts um, that many people forget or maybe don't even know that a lot of those tales, I mean, you look at something like Mulan or something like Aladdin, are influenced and, you know, structured based on fairy and folk tales that come from other cultures. And in addition to that, you have Western fairy tales like Rumpelstiltskin, you know, which comes from the, the Brothers Grimm. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin has counterparts that pop up in various parts around the world and have been told and retold for thousands of years. So there's a kind of universality to the stories that goes beyond, you know, our sort of traditional Western idea of the blonde, blue-eyed princess. And I really wanted to, you know, make note of that in the book. However, as I was continuing to write it um, and my own personal story started becoming a stronger part of the narrative, I started feeling uncomfortable about exploring those tales from cultures that weren't my own because I didn't really think that I would be able to do them justice in the space of the book, which I had known it was going to be a little bit larger than the, the Explosive Views books sort of traditionally are with Kochos, but I still had a limited amount of space in which to write. And it just sort of gradually became clear to me that, you know, those weren't my stories to tell and they weren't my stories to explore. And instead of, you know, sort of giving them token mention in the book, what I wanted to do was use the book to explore my own experience and my own sort of relationship to Western fairy tales and look at how those Western fairy tales through the kind of mainstream media lens have influenced a lot of people, um, regardless of the cultures where they've come from and maybe the, the fairy tales and the folk tales that they know. But then also use the book as a way of pointing people toward the fact that there's so much more that needs to be explored. The second part of it, too, which became increasingly important as I sort of wrote my way through the book, was this recognition that in disability culture specifically, there's a real white privilege problem where a lot of disability conversations, um, you know, are, are ignorant in some ways of the fact that they, they come from a white privileged lens. People who are white and disabled often have vastly different experiences of disability than people who come from other marginalized communities and are also disabled. And that conversation often gets missed in, in disability discussions, especially in the wider world for people who don't know a lot about uh, disability and disability activism. And again, you know, I didn't feel as a white person with a relative amount of privilege um, I didn't feel it was my my place to talk about those things in the book. Um, so I wanted to, you know, highlight the ways in which my life as a disabled woman has been less privileged, certainly, than, than other people's lives. But also, you know, acknowledge the fact that I, I do still have a lot of privilege. And if I can use that privilege to point people in the direction of other stories that they should be reading and and remind people that there are other activists that they need to look for and discover. Um, I, I wanted the book to do that. I just think it's, 
you know, there's nothing wrong with writing. I think in, in writing communities, you know, for the last couple of decades, there's been this real focus on writing the other and, and how writers are, you know, these sort of empathy vehicles. And the way that you practice empathy is by writing stories from the perspective of somebody else. And I don't know if that's really true so much as reading the stories of other people and other cultures and other experiences and ways of being is, in fact, the best way to explore and nurture and um, expand your own empathy. So that's sort of the, the long and the short of it. You know, I wanted to use my own experience and, and put that out in the world and hope that people would connect to it, um, hope that people in the disability and fairy tale community could connect to the various things that I was talking about. But then also, you know, really draw people's attention to the fact that there is so much more room in this conversation for other people to be speaking and for other iterations of fairy tales and the way that they, you know, explore disability to take place to, you know, really, um, this, this needs to be discussed a lot more. And I, I just hope that my book can contribute to opening up those conversations. Amanda, I thought it'd be so nice to get you to read a little bit from your book. So why don't you go ahead and do that for us? And I think in hearing your book and hearing your words, we'd get a real sense of what the work is all about. Absolutely. So this uh, section of the book is sort of about a third of the way in, in the third chapter. And I'm talking sort of on a wider level about fairy tales in Germany. So the Brothers Grimm and those kinds of stories. And then this section within the chapter is about my own uh, particular relationship to story and fairy tale. I start writing stories when I'm five years old. This is also like the dress I wear when I leave the hospital after my first surgery, something that makes me feel special. I write stories about animals, about my family dog, about birds, about dinosaurs. In grade one, I write a story about a rabbit and glue cotton balls to all of my rabbit illustrations. I write stories about my family and about owls and about love. I write a story about the boy I have a crush on. At the end of the story, we get married. I still don't really understand what marriage means when I write it, but I draw myself wearing a beautiful white dress at the wedding. One year for Thanksgiving, I write a story on special paper that's cut out in the shape of a turkey. I write about princesses. If they are not already beautiful, mostly they are. They are always made beautiful by the end of the story. They have raven dark hair or golden blonde hair, and their eyes are never anything but blue. They are always kind, even when those around them don't deserve it. I never write stories about princesses in wheelchairs or princesses who have to hang their legs out of the tub when they're taking a bath. I don't write about girls who have crutches. I don't write about girls who are told they are ugly because they walk differently than everyone else. I don't write stories that don't have happy endings. I am five, then six. My mother reads us the Swiss Family Robinson and Anne of Green Gables and books about Clifford the Big Red Dog. No one is disabled in any of these stories, not that I notice at the time. After I get out of the hospital for my second surgery, the one that gives me a cast on my right leg, I read the little house books from beginning to end. Mary Ingalls has scarlet fever and loses the sight in both of her eyes. She is still beautiful and blonde and good, like a princess, only not a fairy tale one. 
Ma Ingalls and Laura Ingalls make her a trousseau when she travels away to the school for the blind. They make her a beautiful gown of rich brown cashmere. She is blind, but she has Laura to guide her through the world. And then, when at school, she learns to be more independent. I don't see her as disabled when I read the novel as a girl. The only disabled people I know of have canes or use wheelchairs. Eventually, I don't have either of those things anymore, so I don't see myself as disabled either. I can walk like the princesses in the stories that I read. I can't wear their shoes, though, no matter how I try. It's beautiful. But I think it also speaks to really the heart of your book, which is that people with disabilities are seldom portrayed in a visible, affirmative way in the role of the princess or the hero, a really a fulsome representation of people with disabilities from, from fairy tales missing. And you note that as a child, you didn't really even miss it. But looking back on it as an adult and in writing your book and doing your research, what do you think that absence de- did for you as an individual and for other people with disabilities who've embodied that identity of living with a disability but don't see that reflected to them in fairy tales? Right. So in my case, um, I had a limp and it was visible. You know, I got picked on at school for it quite a bit, quite severely. But because I could, quote unquote, walk more or less normally, you know, I could run and I could I could do all of those things. I really tried to pretend like I wasn't disabled um, because being disabled sort of felt the same as being different and being different in a bad way. Uh, And when you're a child on the playground, you know, nothing is more important than fitting in, than having friends and having a group of people that you can hang out with and who, you know, support you and encourage you. And I didn't really have that in elementary school. So from when I was about five till about 13. Um, And those are really pivotal years for children. Uh, You know, when I was looking at when I watched TV or when I read stories, I wasn't really seeing disability portrayed in that kind of positive way, right? I didn't read about disabled princesses. I didn't see disabled main characters on television who were liked and loved. They were, you know, if they were there at all, they were usually an object of pity or they were a side character who sort of, you know, travels alongside the protagonist on their various adventures, but never really gets a story of their own. And so it became important to me even though I didn't realize it at the time, to pretend to not be disabled as much as I could be, because I wanted to be that person who was worthy of their own story, right? Being the the Mm -hmm. protagonist of of their own life and not relegated to a side character. And because I didn't see that disability reflected in the media around me, I just sort of assumed that, well, that, you know, is something that socially is not going to change. So the only way that I can become, you know, have that sort of, affirming story is to not be disabled. There was no question of, at the time, you know, what happens when we tell different stories? What happens when we put disability front and center? What happens when we show young children from a very young age that, you know what, it's actually quite normal to have a young child in a wheelchair or a young child who wears glasses or a young child who is deaf. Um, Kids need to have that sort of stuff normalized in their everyday existence when they're very young, because then they get used to seeing disabled people in regular life, in all aspects of regular life. 
as long as we continue to perpetuate the idea that disability is a special thing that happens to only a special few, we can continue to build a world that leaves those people out. And I think if I, you know, if I, as a young girl, had seen more disability representation, had felt myself to be a part of a community, even if, you know, that community wasn't necessarily immediately around me in my, my elementary school life, I would have been more confident about it. I wouldn't have, you know, tried to turn away from that identity. I mean, I've been disabled all my life, but it's only been within the last five years. I'm 37 now. And it's only been within the last five years that I've really come to be comfortable calling myself a disabled woman and having that as part of my identity. And if I had seen more disability representation, more positive disability representation when I was a child, uh, I think, you know, that wouldn't have been the case. I would have been calling myself and being much more comfortable with that disability part of my identity much sooner. And also, I think it's important because, you know, disability offers a very unique way of viewing the world. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough, right? It's not just enough, actually, to say that we need to include disabled people in everything. Yes, absolutely, we do. We also need to understand that people who are disabled have a way of seeing and moving and being in the world that is quite different from everybody else. And they have unique insights that are important to building a just and inclusive society as a result of being disabled. Um, In one of the later chapters in the book, I talk a little bit about Marvel and superheroes and the kind of way that disability is portrayed in superhero films. And, you know, it was one of the, the realizations for me in my journey as a disabled woman, recognizing that for so long in my life, I had viewed disability as a kind of impediment to success, when in actual fact, uh, what disability is for me is a superpower because it means that I approach things differently. It means that I think about how to include other people and how to create inclusive spaces and tell inclusive stories in a way that's becoming I mean, has always been necessary, but it's becoming increasingly more important and necessary when we find ourselves in the world in which we find ourselves right now. I mean, the the situation that we're going through right now with COVID-19 and all of this is just illuminating in every possible corner of life the way that our society, built as it is, has left so many people out for so long. And the people who are at the forefront of demanding change and saying, you know, here are things that people can do to make themselves feel better, to cope with all of these things that are happening, are disabled people. You know, it's it's not a flaw. It's a superpower. Um, and I wish I had known that much younger, you know, that there's a whole 25 years of my life that I operated without that knowledge. And I mean, it's a huge gift to have now, but it would have been such a huge gift to know that when I was 10 years old and being bullied mm-hmm. at school, it would have helped so much. The voice that you're listening to is Hamilton-based author Amanda LeDuc. We have time for just one more question, Amanda. So let me ask you the million-dollar mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Disney will continue to make fairy tale based uh, animated movies, Mothers and fathers and parents will want to continue to read fairy tales to their children at bedtime. How then do we move forward? Can we reimagine or reinterpret some of the existing fairy tales? Or are these fairy tales so entrenched 
with all of their inherent biases, that maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and write new stories? So I think it's a little bit of both. I think part of the reason that that fairy tales have such staying power is that even as sort of the the general tenets of the stories, you know, remain the same over the years, they also change and adapt in really interesting ways. So you look at something like the story of Beauty and the Beast, the original fairy tale that was told in France um, had a lot to do with fairies and sort of social class structures and all that sort of thing. And those details are gone from the the Beauty and the Beast story that most of us know, i.e. the Disney version. So there's, possible possibilities and much potential in looking at the ways that we can shift these tales. Um, I I do think, you know, as much as they're problematic, I do think there's a lot in fairy tales that point toward reaching for a better world and people who want to overturn the social order. I think the difference now is that instead of telling a fairy tale where, you know, a princess overcomes adversity and marries her prince, Um, you know, maybe we tell a story where the princess doesn't need to overcome or prove herself to the prince necessarily, but needs to overturn society in order to create a new way of being. I think there's huge value in retelling the stories that we know and love for new audiences. For example, um, Disney introducing their live action Little Mermaid. Um, There was a huge outcry about that last year because of certain casting choices. I think actually that that's a hugely positive thing because it means that Little Mermaid is going to be made fresh and new for a whole new audience that hasn't seen themselves represented in that story before. At the same time, I think we also need to start telling new stories and, you know, open ourselves up to fairy tales and folk tales and narratives that go beyond the blue-eyed, blonde-haired princess, right, that, that so many people think of when they think of fairy tales. And I don't think that this is impossible. I think there's lots of really interesting work being done by disabled writers in particular who are starting to reclaim these stories and tell new ones. And I would encourage people to seek them out. You know, go on Twitter or go into Google and type disabled writers, see what comes up, and then make yourself a book list and start reading the stories that these people have to offer because it really will change your world and your worldview. I think there's only one way to end this conversation, and that would be by saying, and they all lived happily ever after. The end. (laughs) Amanda, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Judy. Thank you so much. That was Amanda Duke, author of the new book, Disfigured, on fairy tales, disability, and making space. Her book is available as a paperback on Amazon.ca and as an audiobook on Audible.ca. Amanda is doing a number of things to promote the book, and we'll put that information on our show blog where you can go and find out about some upcoming readings and other events that Amanda might be a part of. If you missed any of our conversation and would like to go back and have a listen, you can find the Pulse podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, and don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. I'd like to point out that although we didn't really get to talk about it with Amanda, you know, when you think about a movie like Shrek, or you think about the very popular paperback princess. These are bold stories that were not only doing something different in the paperback princess. They don't end up actually getting married. And of course, with with Shrek, uh, Fiona remains in her ogre form, uh, but Shrek lets her know that in no uncertain terms that she's very beautiful. And these are, of course, 
ways to innovate storytelling and to be bold in storytelling. But it's really important to remember that Shrek was hugely popular. They had three movies and it was a huge commercial success. So when we think about disability in fairy tales or fantasy or storytelling, these stories aren't just appealing to people with disabilities. The success of, a, of Shrek or the paperback princess shows that these stories are appealing to everyone. I'd like to thank Amanda LeDuc for being my guest today. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager of AMI-audio, with special thanks to Paula Deneen, technical supervisor. But most of all, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll come back to the program soon. We'll talk to you very soon, and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.